Fate would like to thank Jack Rieschen and company for sponsoring this episode of Positive Space. Rieschen manufactures all sorts of painting and drawing supplies. That's oils, acrylics, watercolors, pastels, charcoal, you name it. They probably make it. Heck, they even have studio furniture. Make sure to check out Jack Rieschen at rieschenart.com. That's R-I-C-H-E-S-O-N-A-R-T.com. Welcome to Positive Space, Conversations and Art Foundations, a production of Foundations in Art, Theory, and Education, also known as FATE. Positive Space is a podcast providing opportunities for those passionate about art foundations to discuss and promote excellence in the development and teaching of college-level foundations in art studio and art history classes. Hi. My name is Naomi Falk. I am the CAA affiliate rep for FATE. At the CAA conference in LA, I co-chaired a session with Richard Meninsky entitled, Let's Dance But Don't Call Me Baby, Dialogue, Empathy, and Inclusion in the Classroom and Beyond. Before our session, we recorded an open discussion about the challenges minority faculty and students face and ways to foster inclusiveness and empathy. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, so welcome everybody to Fate at CAA 2018. This is the roundtable discussion with a variety of good people, including all of yourselves. My name is Naomi Falk, and I am the CAA representative. As we go, I think if you would just, especially if you're if you if you really want your name and stuff on in the world is to, to say your, say who you are when you're asking or answering. So some ba- really basic questions like what does, because I, I know from, from my experience and all the teaching that I've done, for the most part, I, whether it's urban or suburban or rural, most of my students have been white. And I've had very few, there's been very little diversity in the student population. And so, you know, that's, and, and currently where I am, I have very few, there's, there's very little mix. And so maybe some of you have different um, experiences, but, you know, I, I keep thinking more and more about how to increase exposure, not just to the art that I grew up learning about, but to the things that are happening in the world currently, but also in the past, like all sorts of things, you know, from slavery to, to all, like, to all, all different countries and, and regions. And so what are some of the things that you all have been doing that increases, like, the openness of, of the exchange or, like, the willingness to, I guess that's too many questions. Um, so, so what, for instance, like, how do you make people comfortable talking about what they what they believe in and the things that they're interested in. Hi, <laughs> I'm Andrew McCauley. I'm associate director of our foundations program at CCAD, which is our Columbus College of Art and Design. So uh, it's been a big discussion, and we've been kind of uh, rolling out like a summer reading for high schoolers going into first year and. 
we have a committee that kind of uh, the, the diversity committee plus the library committee that comes together and tries to um, find uh, literature, maybe graphic novel, maybe uh, maybe maybe uh, poetry, whatever. So um, last year, this year, uh, we did Han Hari Kunzru's White Tears, and um, so it's a fictional novel. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it talks about the, the political climate, race, um, things going on in the classroom. So then what we do is we kind of connect that book to uh, specific projects in their liberal arts course and in their studio courses. So that kind of gives them a, a foundation to, to mm -hmm. start the conversation on. So. Because it's it's I'm, it's not necessarily really easy to start with something of their own personal experience. Me, I mean sometimes yeah. it is, it's kind but of an icebreaker, yeah, right? icebreaker. Yeah. I can see. Yeah. Were you going to add something, Meredith? No. Hi, I'm Virginia Tyler, Saint Augustine's University. It's a historically black college, and so for me, um, including black people is not an issue, that's everyone in the class. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you there are serious obstacles, mm -hmm. very serious ones, because um, the funding for historically black colleges is not strong. Um, not like at state schools where they have, you know, those are land-grant universities. And so for me, the problem is getting supplies and getting money for the kids to have the supplies, and often that means I'm buying the stuff which luckily for foundations is good because I can afford things like wire and cardboard and paper. <laughs> and, and so they get very creative with this stuff. But I can tell you there is still a serious divide between um, the funding for HBCUs and other private universities. Um, however, my students are bright. And part of the reason they're at an HBCU is they want to be part of a place that perpetuates and protects and strengthens black culture. And when they're in the majority, they have no problem saying exactly what they think and exactly what they feel. And so you don't need necessarily the readings, um, but it helps. If you have, say, one black student in a class of 15, that person's gonna be very reticent about speaking. If you have two or three they can make friends, and they will talk amongst each other, and maybe one will decide that he's the extrovert and is willing to talk, or that she's the extrovert and willing to talk. But I really think that if you're going to talk about race, you know, you need more than one representative of that race in the room. For us, the challenge has been more um, including LGBTQ students. And I can tell you, 18 years ago, um, the school was very conservative and they were not supportive and having one, one you know, middle-aged teacher like me supporting them did not help, you know. But now, the weird thing is the students have changed and the students have become more inclusive and so I've got gay students coming in and used to be no one would talk to them, like and no one would help them with projects and now they're like, oh yeah, hi. You know, it's no big deal. So I rely heavily on the students to be inclusive, and I'm just there to be supportive of everyone, but no mean words, no nasty talk to each other. So that's my, that's my goal for inclusivity. Provide them everything they need to make, the, to make their artwork, and provide them all support, 
and no words like the F word, the N word, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you were gonna, did yeah. you wanna add? Sure. Um, I'm Sarah Sharp. I teach at the University of uh, Maryland in Baltimore County. And um, I work really hard to make sure that I'm giving them examples and readings um, that are broadly diverse and that are also from people that are actively making currently to not just have our narratives about. Um, race and gender and sexuality be um, sort of, yeah, <laughs> be like historic, um, but to be very contemporary and to find sort of voices that my students, they might may not be part of the um, canon that I was introduced to in art school or the sort of thing that I have the easiest access to, but I work really hard to find um, current voices that my students will really actively connect to. Um, our campus is incredibly diverse. Um, but I still, the, one of my other sort of tactics or goals in the classroom is to make sure that I'm not putting the sort of onus of representation on students of color or on queer and trans students to make sure that I'm sort of standing up and um, representing for everyone so that there isn't a sort of extra weight or pressure. I mean, mm -hmm. similar to what you were saying, I think, yeah. but um, um, on those students and so that they have a sort of feeling of safety in the class in general and to just sort of create that climate. And then one of my fun, in two of my classes, one of my final projects, um, so this is the way I sort of, you know, I lay down the groundwork, give readings, give examples, and have, you know, very structured assignments. Their final project, they do writing about what is important to them and meaningful to them. And hopefully some of these things get, often they do actually sort of come out in um, the final work that they do. And then, of course, it's always connected to, like, um, sort of formally finalizing the class. But, you know, in, a, in Foundations curriculum in particular, since you're trying so hard to just get these really sort of basic things laid down, um, I, I think it's extra important to sort of get um, these other kind of components about social engagement and empathy and connection to the rest of the world so that they don't feel that formal processes in design or um, I also teach video classes are separate from um, the way that these things operate um, socially and in the world at large. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm Sherry Fryermuth from Umar University in Beaumont, Texas. I'm assistant professor of graphic design, so I'm actually coming at this topic with a little bit different perspective. I only very occasionally teach um, foundation courses, but I was really interested in the topic of diversity and inclusion because I just introduced a new assignment this past summer um, based on the fact that AIGA, the National Association for Design, is, uh, has instituted a diversity inclusion task force, and they have this list of really prominent designers of color, uh, as well as um, they also have like a women's initiative and things going on. So something I've done in my history of graphic design class uh, because I do have a relatively diverse population on my campus and the statistics in graphic design are that minorities aren't really gaining positions in the field and it's a really like staggeringly low number that you know AIGA is really trying to tackle through their task force and figure out what we can do to support students and make sure they're successful and rather than focus on that because not all of my students in the class are necessarily graphic designers I have them kind of question the canon as you were talking about um, by kind of taking the history of graphic design textbook we use Meg's history of graphic design and just questioning it so it's questioning the canon I think is maybe what I called it um, and then pitching 
who they should include in the textbook. So they had to develop a presentation as though it was a pitch to the publisher to include mm -hmm. a person of color or a female that wasn't re well represented um, maybe in the current textbook and how could they make their textbook better by including this person. What, does, what did they offer to the field of graphic design in order to make it um, clear that they deserve to be uh, researched and read about. So I think it went over really well. It was interesting that several, it was a group project. I think I'm going to do it uh, as in, it was online, so was not well received as the fact that it was a group project online, but I think we're going to do it uh, as individual assignments that they really have to research in depth about uh, one specific person and try to get everybody to pick a different person because we had three people pick the same person, um, which was interesting in and of itself. But, um, and so I think that is a way to start. If I teach this class in person, I think it would elicit more interesting discussion rather than on an online discussion board, but I think it's a good way to, I guess, get the topic out there without making somebody feel like they have to represent it from their personal perspective. They can kind of use these other figures that are working in the field as a way to kind of position the topic without feeling like, oh, this is about me and I'm never going to get a job or, you know, or I, I don't relate to this, so I think it kind of frames it in a way that my students responded well to. I want to say something too. Um, like all those are really great ideas. I think the problem might be like from the top, like the trickle down, like you guys were saying. I mean, um, you can you can talk about inclusion, I think, all day long, but unless the students are seeing somebody talking about their own experiences from the top, it's it seems kind of um, disingenuous sometimes. I mean personally for me um, so so I think the to tackle the issue I think schools at least mine um, we've, we've made it um, kind of a point to look at what kinds of faculty we're hiring and having um, having more of a of, of I don't know a, a bigger span of, of, of faculty teaching to those students rather than you know, us talking to those students about what we think those experiences are. So I just yes. want to say that. Hi, I'm Melissa Armstrong. I'm at um, Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm the director of the first year program there. Um, and it's really interesting to hear everybody's approaches, and uh, I, I think they're really key. The other aspect I would say, in addition to, I mean, we need to have faculty, diverse faculty. Uh, whether that's that's hired, whether if you have an all-female faculty, we need to have other genders represented, um, people whose English is not their first language, international faculty. I mean, the whole uh, you know spectrum of of diversity, so that students can be um, can see different perspectives. Whether um, you have a diverse student body, like I do in my school, or you don't have a diverse student body, they need to have teachers that are coming from different perspectives so that they can have that level of education. And another thing I think is that um, we don't have a lot of training for uh, teachers to deal with difficult conversations. And I've heard from several of my um, students of color in particular that they've had some experiences in upper level and in lower level where they had work that maybe dealt with some uh, challenging um, topics, maybe about racial relations or sexual orientation, and the faculty was afraid to have the tough conversation because they were maybe 
um, leery of saying something wrong or didn't know how to approach it. And instead, what they did is reverted to talking about formal issues for that student's work. And as a result, the student felt marginalized, ostracized, was not getting an equal uh, critique educational experience. And all the classmates were seeing that too, is like, why is the teacher not talking about this particular content? And I think it came, you know, comes from sometimes not just a place of bias by that faculty, but because they just don't know how to have that conversation. And uh, we need to have opportunities for faculty to um, be trained so that they can recognize what they might be doing unintentionally, and also to ensure that they're not accidentally yeah, marginalizing students and um, we're providing the full plethora of educational experiences for all of our students. I was just thinking about that too, and one of the other questions I had was, do you all like formally or in, informally discuss like how how to be empathic and inclusive? Like, what does that look like? And to actually have a, a conversation with students about those things. Um, like, I know I I co-taught a class with a choreographer last semester, and we like stuff was going on in the news and we would walk in in class and this is a group of sculptors and dancers and we would sit down and be like, can you believe what just happened last night? Did you see the news this morning? And we would have like a 20 minute discussion and sometimes the, the students looked shell, like they're like, why are we talking about this in dance class or whatever? But we, said, we were very open about how this is important stuff and this does impact the work that you're doing even you know, because this is also a form of communication, and so anyway, I was curious about that. Can I talk to Gwen first? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, cause, just because you had a chance here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. I'm Gwen Montgomery, and I teach at the University of um, Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and I I teach at a really huge research uh, university that has prioritized um, and is renowned for engineering and the STEM field. So um, for a long time, our, our priorities were very much about uh, the sciences. And I think that there's been a little bit of a cultural shift uh, recently at my university where um, diversity has become more of a focal point. That's partly because of an administration change where we had a chancellor um, who actually came from a very uh, interesting and diverse background and has brought some of that to the university. Um, and the point made, I think Andrew was saying earlier about there being a necessity for it to be a top-down. And there is, there is only so much one can do in their classrooms that you can, you can provide, uh, you can expose them to many things. You can provide mm -hmm. diverse examples. You can assign readings and you can discuss current events. Mm -hmm. But at some point, your administration has to prioritize uh, hiring, diversity hiring. They have to look for people who uh, do not look like this, all the same people in the room. Um, and I'm seeing that happening. Our, our faculty is slightly changing. It's, of course, extremely slow, but it has happened. And with that, the student body has changed. Our recruitment um, activities have been more uh, aimed at underserved populations. And when those underserved populations come to tour the campus, they see faculty members that uh, look like them and are much more encouraged to come mm -hmm. there and it is through that that we're getting this really slow cultural shift on campus. So I do think that there is uh, hope for these situations even in 
um, a kind of giant place like I work, mm -hmm. um, but the, it, it does require the people above you being equally invested. I'm Meredith Starr from Suffolk County Community College. I think we're talking a lot about the, t the top down now or what we're doing as faculty in terms of introducing resources or um, you know, bringing in guest artists and readings, but I think so much of what the students are feeling in terms of being aware of their diversity is they feel like they're coming to class with these very unique and extremely disparate and, and different experiences. So I think talking really about the activities that we do in the classroom, mm -hmm. um, beyond like the exercises and the collaborations and the sense of community building that we can um, instill that so that they have a shared classroom experience so that they're building empathy with each other for what's happening um, for that experience in the room right then. So one of the things we talk about in my classroom like while simultaneously acknowledging that everyone is a unique individually and they're, you know, that they're entitled to feel pride for their race or their, um, how they want to identify with gender is that we're trying to perceive each other as people beyond their race, beyond their gender preference, and so that we're all people and that we're all artists in this room working together and the activities that we then move on to um, participate in as a group, right, then they're having a common experience and they sort of are able to shed um, a little bit of their their background when they come through the door to have a new experience together. And I think that sort of helps create this um, inclusion and empathy because they feel like this is a place where they are all together and they're all part of this. So they, they're able to lose some of, well, this is who I'm coming from and you're different from me. Mm -hmm. Sherry Primus again. Um, I, I think uh, because I come from graphic design background, I'm trying something new this semester where I'm taking a user interaction type of assignment to think about empathy with my students in a more formal way. And I'm using it in a design one class. Um, but because in user experience, you're constantly thinking about the user and how they feel, I guess it just kind of takes it out of the context of diversity and inclusion. But I think it's an interesting way for students to start thinking about how other people think and mm -hmm. so one of the projects I'm trying is I don't know if you're familiar with Carnegie Mellon's cube project where you have to develop a cube that's no larger than six inches and it has to entice the uh, I've kind of made it in two parts um, I've modified it a little but I, they make two cubes one where it entices the user to either turn it rub it or squeeze it and then another cube where they have to turn it, rub it, and squeeze it. And so they sort of build assumptions about how people will behave with these cubes that they create, and they have to sort of watch them behave and then figure out how they could maybe modify their designs. And that's kind of like a really introductory project into the task of going into user experience and user interaction design, um, which interestingly is in a tech field, which is like very low in um, both female and minority um, employees. But um, it's just kind of an interesting project that I haven't done with a freshman level group before, and so I will be trying that after spring break and seeing how they respond to just thinking about something, because they're so kind of wrapped up in their foundation projects right now. They're working individually, and they are kind of confused and just trying to figure this out by themselves, and so I'm hoping it builds some of that classroom collaboration. They have to work in groups, and then they have to assess other groups' behaviors that are outside of the classroom, so it's kind of a formal way, I guess, to address empathy that I think will be interesting and how they respond, and it's all going to be a lot of discussion after the fact, and they have to just do a little report about their findings kind of in a scientific way, but so. we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I love the Cube Project, yeah. but one, one wrinkle I'd like to put into it 
is, is have it, um, the students say, the last thing I would ever want to do to that cube is touch it, rub it, or, or squeeze it. I mean, <laughs> because repulsion is as, is as important as retra uh, attraction. Um, but I, I did want to say one other thing. When we talk about, about uh, professors' inability to talk to students about uh, really difficult discussions, and one thing we don't talk about it in foundations or in art class much is love. And there's a point where you just have to break down that wall and treat the student like the 17 or 18-year-old beginning student that they are because foundation students are usually beginners. They're usually very old teenagers, and sometimes they just need your, your loving attention. And sometimes you need to talk about, well, you know, um, the members of my family who are gay, who I love no matter what, um, and so, and in terms of uh, crossing the race barrier, a white person is never going to know what it means to be a black person. It is that simple. But then again, think about how many members of our families we love and will never completely, completely understand. Families don't understand each other, but we can still love each other. And if you tell that to someone and then just sit down and listen to them, you have at least a chance to get them to stay in college and keep working on whatever it is that is making them angry or cry or upset at the time. I mean, part of what we do is we're helping raise young people into young adults. And so this idea of empathy for all of our students, I think it's absolutely critical. And I'm so glad you brought it up and made a session about it. Hi, I'm Richard Maninsky, and I teach at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, which is a rural campus. And I'm wondering if anybody here today um, has any thoughts about inclusion of uh, a range of political ideas. I'm thinking about mm -hmm. hot-button issues like guns, mm -hmm. for instance, where, you know, in, in my neck of the woods is certainly a, a subject that people have very passionate mm -hmm. opinions about. <laughs> you're like, you're you're like well, making me think a lot. Um, Valerie Powell, I teach at Sam Houston State University um, in Texas. Hi. And, and, uh, and so one of the things that, that I think is important in terms of thinking about inclusion, um, and I think it's important that we think about our safe spaces for learning and, and teaching, but also in a collegial way, that we're extending that to our colleagues um, and that we're being empathetic with them and not just sort of assuming things that are perhaps untrue. And one of my colleagues... Um, Jessica Samorte, she came up with this great idea. We have this um, first day sort of contract that we pass out to our students after syllabus, and in theory they've read it, and, um, and they understand it, and, um, and they have to um, you know, check various things. Yes, I agree, this is the attendance policy, blah, blah, blah. But then in addition to that, there's um, things that we ask them about you know, who they are you know, in terms of what's your name, but then what, what do you want to be called? Um, what's your pronoun preference? Um, and, and she added that in, and I thought that was so brilliant, you know, because we've been seeing a lot of students that, you know, have these moments in a critique where they're like, well, I'm, I'm actually they, or I'm, I'm he, and, or I, I'm this or that. And, um, and then, in addition, just sort of talking to them about, well, if somebody misgenders you in class, or if we accidentally do that, how would you like us to handle it? 
you know, because sometimes in a crit, if, if Johnny calls somebody something else, and then, you know, you don't want to shame Johnny, but then you don't want to make this other person not heard either. Um, and, and so sometimes uh, it just has been so helpful, you know, in understanding that everybody has really different preferences and really different sensitivities. Um, but, but just asking and just being human and saying, I really don't know, and can you please help me out with this, because I'm not sure, um, has, has been, like, really, really helpful. Um, and in terms of guns, um, in August of 2017, all Texas schools now have a concealed carry um, thing that happens in our classrooms. And so um, since I teach primarily 18-year-olds in the WASH program, um, you have to be 21 to get a concealed carry license in Texas at this point. And so, um, so thankfully, that's not a lot of my students, but my colleagues are carrying concealed, other students on campus are, are carrying concealed, and, and so it's something that's very much on, on, on the forefront of our minds um, in terms of safety and in terms of um, having a safe space, and and I think um, it, it's, it's often really challenging when everybody has such strong opinions, is to make sure that everyone feels really heard, but nobody feels attacked or shamed or um, shunned or, or something like that, um, but it's it often makes gathering in large groups uh, kind of frightening, to be honest. This is Sarah Sharp again. I, so I just want to say one thing in terms of the top-down conversation. Um, one of the wonderful things about UNDC is that there are multiple initiatives. We have um, specific fellowships um, for uh, postgraduate candidates um, based on university and have really like complex hiring systems for them um, and uh, extra funding. And uh, my campus also initiated a um, mentor program. Uh, so all it began as a way to mentor um, uh, women and people of color who were new hires because of the statistics about like who actually goes on to get tenure. Um, and so you were given an outside and external mentor, and they actually get paid. And you go and talk at their school, and they come and talk at your school and in your field. So it's this kind of like research and teaching support. It's really amazing, and it was so successful that they extended it to all new hires. Um, so I, so that's one thing I feel very lucky about, and I completely agree that because there's this position from the administration, it trickles down into all of the rest of um, our hiring practices and ideas. Um, about the political speech stuff, I, um, one of the final projects I do in my 2D design class, my students have to um, design, it's, it's a color theory project, but they have to design a poster that they know is going to go out in public in the hallway in the classroom, in the, in the um, visual arts department area with their name attached to it. And it has to be about a social cause that they care about. And I, it can't be about um, a few specific things. It can't be about religion. Um, but because it has to be about a general social cause. Uh, and that becomes, they have to do a lot of writing about it and research about it, and I limit the number of words they can use, and we talk about protest signs and political speech and public speech and the difference between having this conversation in our classroom versus on Facebook versus in the hallway, uh, when you know what it means to be in these social relationships with the people around you and the other people you're in class with and in your dorm and your teachers and what it means to sort of stand behind words that you put up. And uh, so that is, ends up being, that's our sort of final project and ends up being this space that um, allows for all of these really complex conversations and also allows for a little bit of the dissolving of, you know, um, a feeling of kind of isolation that comes from being able to have an online persona where there might not be a, a larger social effect immediately 
based on what you say, right? So this is like you're going to say it and it's going to be in public. And it also had the effect of um, telling the rest of our department, right, the rest of our students, that these are things we care about and think about and that content can be um, sort of present in this really socially active way. Okay, Meredith Stark, and just building on what Sarah was discussing, oh, this is something I'd actually presented on one of the fate panels at um, CAA a few years back, but I do a similar similar project, you know, art, um, they have to do a drawing about a cause, and in their research component, they have to find at least three organizations that support their cause, um, that they're standing behind, and, and ones that, um, but also because thinking about some of the things that started this line of question, right, about guns, like who are the investors for that organization? Is it a legitimate organization? What are the change initiatives that they're providing? And then we have the same conversation about um, how you share your work and with whom you're sharing your work, but the final step of the project is to decide the organization they want to share their work with. And so I curate um, a website, a student online gallery, because we don't have one on our campus. It's called The Verge art space and then their works get posted to that site and then they choose to um, like share it at that organization. Sometimes it's also an individual. And so sometimes for the students, um, they might hear back. And so for them, it's taking their voice beyond the classroom wall to hear you know, who's hearing them and they feel like they actually, they, they do have a voice. And I think it helps take it beyond just, oh, I posted this to Facebook and there are people looking. It's you know, learning that at this age, you, you can start with small steps to make change, to be heard. Can you say more about your website? Oh, yeah. The, the, the okay. curate? Uh, yep. So, <laughs> okay. Um, so it's called The Verge Art Space. Um, right now it's just hosted through Tumblr. Um, the homepage is this curation of all of the, the projects that the students are making with this careful research and um, in conjunction with that. And then there's also um, now, at the student's request, to take it to the next level, there's also an Instagram account um, so that we can even, so it is shared through the Tumblr, but also because more and more organizations are, you know, mostly on Twitter and Instagram, we have both of those accounts as well. And then hearing the voices or the concerns or the causes that the students are passionate about during the semester, because the students typically follow the sites, right, that, because their work is being shared or their families are, then um, me and some other colleagues um, push content through Twitter also that is carefully curated, but as best as we can also, um, although we have our own opinions on politics and guns and all of these issues, we are very conscientious that not everybody shares our opinions. So the, the things that we're sharing are, are relevant to everybody and not just one group. Um, so there's sort of three facets to that, to that website. We just have a few minutes left here. Let's see if I have other questions. Yeah, do you, that, well, and we yeah, were just, yeah. I just barely, not exactly in that broad language, mm -hmm. talked about it before I got here, but, but what I, what, what suggestions <coughs> or what things can you think about how to make fate more inclusive? We, you know, I mentioned, we just briefly talked about the fact that so many adjuncts teach in foundations classes, and yet our conference and things don't look as diverse as they could with with adjuncts, but certainly with other people too, from all different backgrounds. Because I'm a non-foundation person, I figure I'd come from that perspective again. But I was just thinking a lot of the faculty in my department are studio art faculty that occasionally teach 
uh, they every semester teach one or two foundations. So I don't know if they're. I have one colleague I know that's been to fate before, but it, he doesn't go every time you have a conference. And I've seen the call for mm -hmm. fate conferences, so I'm aware of. Um, but I've never been to one, so I don't know if making it more inclusive could include studio and um, a broader disciplines in some way, um, and how that connects or how foundations connect to these other courses once students pick a track, whether we have art education um, as well, so I don't know if that's a big representation of fate either, but um, I, I don't know if there's a way to connect that. You have, you have a Facebook presence, right? Mm -hmm. We do have a Facebook page, uh, a Facebook group. And uh, what I was going to say, too, is that it might be partly just a, not so much a, awareness of what actually happens at the conferences, because while it is um, overall geared towards foundations, it's so much about teaching. It's so much about teaching. And, and so that's, that's like the good, juicy parts in a lot of ways. Hi, I'm Susan Altman from Middlesex County College. So I think actually FATE is very inclusive in terms of it is about teaching. It is really, you know, for all of the conferences I went to, even if you're not teaching specifically 2D, 3D, what, what you learn and what people bring up and the ideas that people share really apply to every studio course that you could teach and pedagogically teaches you new ways to think. And I always leave with new ideas. So I think that it does reach out beyond just foundations. I think that what people present can be applied to any class. And it's a very intimate, I happen to love that conference because it's a very intimate, you really get to know people, you have breakfast and lunch with them, and you talk about art and teaching all the time. There are lots of teaching conferences out there, but not specifically to our discipline. So I think that that's really valuable in terms of that. Thank you. Well, and I think, too, one of the things I was thinking about is, is how it seems like we're getting more and more regional events, too. So it's making it more accessible that way to, to people. And those things um, are, seem to be you know, pretty grassroots, sort of like, you want to do something? So contact mm -hmm. us, and, and we'll, we'll all make it happen. And you know, it doesn't have to be expensive. And it could be just an afternoon or even you know, a couple days. It could look like all sorts of things. And so in that way, I think that's a pretty cool way to be more um, inclusive and, and reach other people that wouldn't be able to travel you know, a distance and with the expense and everything to get to the conference, which is, only every, which is every two years. So, so and the regional events happen pretty frequently. We're having one coming up in April like I said, in Columbus, Georgia. And um, you just had one, Valerie, at, at Sam Houston in yeah, February. It was really small. It was free. Um, we ended up just having a <laughs> workshop yeah. that um, one of my colleagues, Adam Farkas, who's amazing, um, they put that on uh, with Jessica Samorte. And it, it was really, really nice, you know, and there were um, some really recent uh, MFA grads from the Houston area that came out to it. And so it was just sort of a mixed bag of, of people and, and um we just were sort of playing and drawing, and we got to exchange our zines with each other, which which was really fun. Yeah. I didn't know about that workshop, and I want more specifics about the one coming up in April, exactly where and exactly when, because okay. I can get time off for that. Do you guys do a call for exhibition when you do your two-year? Do we do conference? a call for exhibitions? Yes. 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 Yeah, and, okay. and actually, our our next conference 
will be, <laughs> for everyone will want to hear that sound, um, we'll be at Columbus College of Art and Design where Andrew is, is teaching and he's a big part of um, getting getting that going for us and um, it's going to be April 4th through 6th, 2019 and uh, we have it every two years, um, our conference and so, um, and then on our website which is foundations-art org. Um, you can look at the regional page, and that just has a bunch of information um, about that event that's coming up um, in April. There's also there's also a new social media account. Yes, follow. hours ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are we? Oh, Art <laughs> Foundations. That's oh. right. Art Foundations, uh, brainchild of us. Yes. Um, we were so, in our robes after going to the pool this morning. That's right. So in, our, uh, in an effort uh, to follow through with some of the inclusivity and diversity uh, uh, things that we've been working on, I think that that's another way that we're thinking about just uh, visibility. So mm-hmm. artists that are in our community that we want to honor through mm-hmm. something as simple as showing their work on the social media pages, um, mm-hmm. different ways of getting people in our community out there that are um, that represent this effort a little bit. Um, and I think that, mm-hmm. that could be part of it. So mm-hmm. look us up for the follow. <laughs> yes, and we are on Facebook, and then we also are on iTunes, which is slightly terrifying, but we have, this is a wonderful logo that Gwen actually designed for us. Um, she's on the Fate board. We have a a podcast that's now every two months. Um, every two weeks, we have an episode that, that comes out on iTunes. It's free to download. Um, if you go to the Fate website, there's a little uh, menu that's called Fate Voice. And so um, so the podcast is, is one of those efforts, again, to uh, to reach out to those folks that are part of the Fate community, but also beyond, you know, in terms of um, artists and educators, uh, textbook writers, those kinds of things that are, um, you know, teaching and have advice and have um, ideas and, and projects that are that are really helpful. Then we were also putting out a journal. We put out a peer-reviewed journal, um, and that'll be coming out later um, this year, which is really exciting. So if you have suggestions for who we should interview mm-hmm. or um, upcoming, there will be, again, another call for um, writing and things for the review at, at, at some point in mm-hmm. the future. Mm-hmm. And so those are also ways that we can can reach more people and be more inclusive, too. Right, and with the conference in Columbus, Ohio, there will be a call for juried exhibition um, and then, you know, more information coming out soon in terms of the theme and and call for presentations and uh, workshops and sort of things that maybe aren't so um, sort of standardized um, in, in terms of what that conference is going to look like. So we're excited. Any, any last thoughts, y'all? I'm Barbara Bergstrom. I'm at Bowling Green State University, and um, one of the courses I teach at BGSU is the required pedagogy course that first-year graduate students in the MFA program have to take before they teach as TAs in their second year, Mm -hmm. and I would love for them to be able to afford to come to a fake conference. Given it's in Columbus, we could make a road trip. I'm just wondering what specifics could we share with current MFA students who want to be educators when they graduate um, and are learning. Um, right now they're full of the typical first-year teacher questions like classroom management and grading and, and all of that sort of thing. How do, you, how do you create a rubric? And, you know, that's part of my role there to help students learn how to do that. But they, that isn't true at all universities. So if, there's, if there are special resources that could be made available through FATE, 
so that even if they couldn't attend the conference, if there's podcasts or something they could listen to that are specific to the needs of MFA students who are supposed to be in their studios, right? They're getting MFA degrees. So, so they just need as much as possible as far as tutelage um, and one day they too want to become educators. So just thinking about the grad students who have no money and little time and how fate could be a great resource for them too. Really quick, and let's hang out more later. But, um, but I um, just interviewed, um, so I'm the host on the podcast, and I interviewed a person that's about to get their MFA uh, just in a couple months from the University of Idaho. Um, his name's David Jansen, and um, phenomenal person, and had been teaching for a couple years, and just was, was really um, insightful in terms of what his perspective had been and what it's been like and, and sort of how he viewed higher education in, in, in general, which I thought was wonderful. And I'm like, oh, we should have more graduate students on this because this is their fresh and they have a really unique perspective. Um, and one thing that we did last year um, was we asked those folks that were listening to the podcast um, and then just the larger fate community to um, to nominate someone that is not a tenure track person, that is not making probably a comma in their paycheck very often, that would want to come to the fate conference. And so that could be a graduate student, that could be a TA, that could be an adjunct, a lecturer, et cetera. And, um, and we only had about, you know, a month and they just had to email me this little form and we got like almost 20 of them and then on the podcast in this really cheesy way that was not visually exciting at all I just drew um, three names I was like why, why am I doing this live this seems ridiculous but so I drew three names out and so we, we were able to completely fund their um, experience at the conference um, and, and a lot of those folks um, maybe it was like their second semester teaching you know as an adjunct so that was really phenomenal and I really hope that we're able to do that more but I love the idea of having something that's like specifically for graduate students um, where they can be nominated or you know something like that or self-nominate and so our website has relatively robust as far as all the different things with the podcast links and to the regional events and to everything else there. And um, so good stuff. There is, uh, I don't know, we keep talking about whether to, which, which, how it's going to migrate with the member share thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what the situation with it, that yeah, is. Yeah. So, um, so if you want to become a Fate member, that's fun. We uh, just—it's—it's um, it's a tier membership, and there are various tiers. And for the first time ever, we have an adjunct and a graduate student tier level that is, um, I think, very reasonable. We also have a um, retired um, faculty level that I think is also accurate. And within that, so if you go to the Fate website, you can actually log on, and then you'll be. Um, able to activate lots of exciting resources, one of them being the FATE member share, which is um, this explosion of project ideas, and there are some folks in, in the past have gone to a FATE conference and they have um, uploaded like their PowerPoint or shared their paper presentation or things like that, so you can um, search. It's, it's a lot of things that are happening, but um, that is also something that's available, and I know some folks that have hosted regional events have also shared that kind of uh, those sorts of resources um, as well. So that's something that's available. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. It was a lovely conversation, and I appreciate your attendance. Enjoy the rest of the conference.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Positive Space. If you're interested in being part of FATE's ongoing conversation about art foundations, visit the FATE website at foundationsart.org. Don't forget the dash between foundations and art. This episode's interview was conducted by Valerie Powell and was engineered and edited by Raymond Gaddy. Our theme music was provided by Lee Rosevere. If you like what you hear on Positive Space, be sure to give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you find your podcast. Better yet, send us some audio. You can call Positive Space at 904-990-FATE. That's 904-990-3283. You may find your voice on the next episode of Positive Space.